Blog Talk Radio. All the spot analysis. Am I crazy? Uh, <laughs> uh, no. Are we on a podcast? Yeah. I, I think I'm going to come get some. If you want some, come. Gotta get that. Gotta get that. Gotta get that. My favorite, though. Am I? You're my favorite. Well, thank you yeah. so much. I think not. Put me on the e meter and ask me a question, and the needle would float. Day 67. Welcome to Come Get Some. I'm Miami Six Man Chris C. You can follow me on Twitter using Miami Six Man or the show using CGS here. Or you can email CGS here at gmail.com. Email your suggestions, your thoughts, your responses. Do you want to be on the show? Tell me about it. Let's talk. Um, also, you can find me on Blog Talk Radio and iTunes if you want to send a, uh, a message of uh, five star ratings and uh, subscribe. It'd be really nice too. Uh, wow. Okay, day 67 is Thursday, March 9th, and uh, and uh, Trump care is being pushed through, and already efforts are being made to repeal and replace uh, the entire administration. But that's that's neither here nor there. <laughs> you may have uh, you may remember I've had Kathy Shankelberg on a show a couple times here, and uh, she's an scientologist and uh, does that show Squeeze My Cans touring around America, the Squeeze My Cans Across America tour. She she's had that tour over there at the Greenhouse Theater in Chicago extended through March 19th, so make sure you check that out. Uh, I know I'm gonna check it out when she's here in Tampa at the end of the month. Um, also, uh, you may remember I had a Library Bards on. I'm a big fan of theirs and, and love those guys. Uh, they've got a new video out called Geeky Girl, which I talked about to with them almost a year ago. Now we talked about Geeky Girl, and now it's finally out. It's got GK Bozen as Gamora, and uh, it's just a really cool. Uh, Cool musical video and job there. Um, if you have been following the Danny Masterson story, the whole thing where he uh, was accused of, of raping some girls in Scientology, and then um, and it's been covered up by Scientology, and there was some something compromised about the LAPD. Um, I it would be responsible for me to sit here and say a very irresponsible sit here and say he's just a rapist and all this stuff. But I do have an opinion, and I can have an opinion. And tomorrow, before I talk to Mary Khan on my Scientology Extra Come Get Some Edition, uh, before we get to Mary Khan, I'm going to talk about my opinion, and, and i got a lot of opinions about this. So you won't want to miss a second of tomorrow's show uh, where I'll address all these things. In the meantime, here is actor, singer, voice artist, Adam Gifford. Adam Gifford? That's his name. Yep. All right, my guest today, somebody who's actually uh, been uh, been someone I've known for almost a year now, and it just occurred to me out of the blue the other day, I was like, I've never had this guy on my show. Why haven't I had him on my show? He's been so supportive <laughs> of the podcast. He's such a great actor, so talented and, and multi-talented. Uh, I'm going to introduce him right now. It's Adam Gifford. Welcome to the show, Adam. Hey, Chris. Uh, nice to be here. Uh, I'm great, man. I'm just happy to have you. And it's real funny because we haven't had a lot of interactions over the last year. But regardless of that, you're sort of part of my story in a way that you've been real supportive of what I do here. 
uh, with very little with very little interaction. But I think that's part of uh, our mutual friendship with GK. I think. Yeah, it's all about GK. She's awesome. It's only GK. It has nothing to do with me. <laughs> uh, I she and I were uh, we've been at the same two voiceover agents. We were both at one like 14 years ago, and then we both moved to the one that we're still both at now. And uh, we connected in the waiting room one day, waiting to read our copy. Nice. And you kind of got that multicultural connection there, like the multicultural club. Is, yeah, we have that too. The mixed race, <laughs> ethnically ambiguous. You got like 250 that. races in you. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> the problem is, it's just, you know, well, wow, all of a sudden we can get political, right? You know, something I didn't want to do, but... Um, <laughs> The stuff that's going on uh, right now in the country with what they're talking about the divide and all that, I've been experiencing that all my life because right. uh, no one knows who I am. So sometimes people say racist things about other people while they're nudging me. And but they're later, talking about they're you. Like, oh, I thought you were a white guy with a tan. Ah. Or sometimes when they find out about me or my heritage, some people don't respect the full diversity of my mother's side of the family because... When you have one drop of black blood in you, they don't care how white my father was either. You know what I mean? So that's yeah. all my life. And it's worse now than ever before, but what else is new? But what else is new? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I have, a, I have a theory about this. Go ahead. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, what is it? My theory, this, this takes me right into race. I'm going to say, first of all, everyone can look at the scroll when this plays, when this podcast is on Blog Talk Radio. You can look at the scroll in the pictures. You're going to see a recent picture of Adam Gifford, and you've been doing this all your life. You have a lifetime of, of acting behind you already on IMDb, and, and I can say that you look very youthful, and that's kind of a thing. And I think this oh, plays into – you're welcome. This plays into my theory of why uh, there's racism in the world, and I can say this theory because I'm a, I'm a white guy that happens to look youthful myself for my age. Mm-hmm. But But my theory is that – since the beginning of time, people of darker skin pigments, of, of multi-ethnic races, have aged better than the white man. Uh, this, well, <laughs> you know, this is a theory that that might uh, be a good thing to mix. Mixing is good, and that it helps mankind. But, you know, that's a whole complicated, crazy... Well, there's people who argue about who came from what part of the planet and... Did we really just migrate out of Africa 60,000 years ago and all these things? So, Well, that's getting a little deeper than I was going to get. But what I'm saying, what I'm saying, is, what I'm saying is people like you look at yourself, GK, someone like Chris Summer, you guys have all aged. I mean, you know, you're not all in the same age groups, but, but you've all aged gracefully and amazingly. And, and the average white dude grows up to shrivel up and lose their hair look like an uncircumcised penis. My, and, dad, I mean, you know, <laughs> my, dad, my dad was white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. He died at 59. Wow, so, that's a shame. I'm sorry about that. that. And he was a school teacher. Yeah, he so was never happy. Yeah. He was an art teacher, but he was not happy in in the way the school system was. You know. Uh, I, was, I was gonna say, I was gonna say, look at look at the White House, and you look at Sean Spicer and Steve Bannon. I mean, I mean, Spicer's not fair to call him uncircumcised penis because he looks circumcised. But but the thing with Bannon, but the thing with Bannon, he he's all girth. And if you look, if you look at the guy, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anything about other men's anatomy in that way. That's not something oh, I'm aware of. Well, I'm talking about appearances no, and aging. Let's take a hard left from that. Let's bury people. Come on, Adam. <laughs> Here's something that, uh, well, it affects my business. And I know. I get you. Believe. I don't even want to get into that. 
because then it'll be a, a negative uh, talk between us. And I, hey, I don't yeah. want to focus on negativity. Yeah. Adam Gifford was on Come Get Some Bad Mouthing Politics. Yeah, I get <laughs> well, The next story. Yeah, just because, you know, anyway, here it's still just me talking about anything about my life is inherently political. Right. So, for example, the, the animated series that I'm on that I can't talk about. You just got booked. Whatever. Yeah, I just got booked, and it's connected to something I did in the past. But I think I can say that I am playing a Mexican middle-aged man. <laughs> the, the ethnic voice. Joe Lockmeyer. Yeah. <laughs> huh? The ethnic voice oh, and everything. Show Lo- well, you know, he's, uh, that's about all I can do for you, right? Right. Like, <laughs> so, um, and then I, I just did a movie in December where I played the main bad guy, and I'm a Mexican killing Colombians and trying to kill the white guy and the Mexican guy all through the movie. And... I'm on the series Longmire playing Cheyenne because I'm part Cherokee on the Jamaican side of my family on my mother's side. So that's what we were talking about earlier. It's like if I tell somebody my mom is black and I don't tell them, well, she's Jamaican with also Costa Rican and Cherokee and her maiden name is Italian, because they don't really understand the real diversity of why I get to do yeah. so many different races and be so many races. And even in voiceover they will sometimes not want you to play a role unless you're absolutely 100% something. And, and same thing on, on camera and theatrical film and television I've been doing all my life. Yeah. Since I was six years old. Yeah, I've talked to so GK about I'm that. I'm fortunate that I book jobs at all and that people allow me to be whatever I can do. Like, I can do 40 accents, Chris. Awesome. That's why I've been making money in voiceover. That's why I do eight voices in Wildstar and I've been on World of Warcraft for the last three iterations, playing different monsters, different, you know, and I've got to be able to do English or Scottish or German or French or Italian, or, and I can do other weird stuff other people can't do and that don't come up. So that's how I get work, is by using my full mixed race sort of background and ability to be a mimic and do different dialects. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's interesting. On camera, I'd never get to do that. They're never going to let me play Scottish Superficial. or yeah. German on camera, ever. Not in my lifetime. It's not going to happen. But I can do them. That's so. great. I mean, I mean, the entertainment industry is superficial, that's for sure. And it's like it can hurt you or help you um, how you look. It's just really, really interesting how that can so like, here's shake out. I can talk about with you, though. I, um, I don't know if you knew this, but do you play Call of Duty at all? Yes, sir. Game? Yes, sir. Uh, in Call of Duty Black Ops 3... I play the voice of the Czechoslovakian specialist character, Christoph Hedge, Firebreak. And because I can do that for You see what I'm saying? Yeah. That they allowed me. They allowed me, and so I booked it. That, that, that's incredible. I'm not allowed. Sometimes <laughs> I'm just not allowed. <laughs> That's no. craziness, man. I, I, think, I think people like you and GK Bowes, you, you represent what America is, and that's everything. I mean, it's supposed to be, yeah. you know, not to get political again, but just you, you actually represent the, the baseline. Uh, I think it's crazy that we have any other kind of prejudices, but, but we'll, we'll digress from, from the prejudice talk and the, and the race talk, I suppose, <laughs> for now. Um, so you've been acting all your life, and, uh, and you started, what was the... And rock and roll. And rock and roll, we'll get to that. Uh, how, how old were you when yeah, you started that? Overly in the... I was, I was, uh, well, God, I guess I'm going to out myself as a middle-aged guy after... Ah, uh, you have to say the year. <laughs> okay. I started rocking in the 80s. I got record deals, a couple record deals in the 90s, 
and then whatever in the 2000s is when I started voiceover. So wow, it's been entertainment all my life, and my mother's an actress, and my father was an art teacher. So surprise. So, so your mom was a uh, Gloria Gifford. She is. She's alive. Was, is, will, will always be. <laughs> yeah. Maybe bad choice of wording. Name, that's what I'm saying. Her maiden name from her Jamaican father is Nita because his grandfather was from Italy. And okay. So the mix goes far back in the family. And grandma was all mixed and diverse as well. So, But during their day, back to being political, when you were fighting <laughs> for civil rights, you don't claim your full diversity pre-1967 or 1970. You, you had to just be black because you were going to ride in the back of the bus anyway. So nobody gave a damn how much, you know, Cherokee and Italian was in you. Right. It was only during my lifetime, post-civil rights, that I have constantly been trying to claim the full diversity of my heritage and the white side of me. Half of me is white, and I'm never allowed to claim that. I'm never allowed to get any benefit from that or anything, anything. It's just like, that, just like the president that we love that just left. He was like me. He's half and half, but he was just the first black president. Nobody gave a damn how white his mom was. And it, so that's left over from racial stuff and Jim Crow and everything. And all the crybabies who lost the Civil War and have never gotten over it. So yeah. My life is political. Walking down the street for me is political. Booking a job is political. I don't know how I'm still alive. <laughs> Well, we're glad you are. Uh, you, you make great contributions, and I, I've seen your posts on social media. You know, you're you're very you are opinionated, but the fact of the matter is, you're very. Uh, what's the, what, 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 you okay? Yeah. Oh, I'm hearing something. I'm hearing something else in the background. I thought it was you making noises. I thought you were trying to say something. No, okay. I'm, I'm at the park. Okay. My apartment is a little pressed, so. I think that guy. I think that guy popped a wheelie back there. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> So, so you were uh, you were very young. Your mom had a school. Did you did you automatically by default end up teaching at the school, or was that something that happened no, between jobs? Well, or here, here's the two aspects of that, which is when I was very very small and my parents were fighting every day and their divorce was imminent. My mother was also confronting her dream of being an actress. Uh. But I had already been like a little entertainer in the family. I was singing and dancing and drawing and acting already. So she asked me. Before she confronted her dream, she asked me when I was five, do you want to act, Adam? Do you want to do this? And I was like, eh, I don't think so. And then the next year, when she finally was going to leave my father and commit to acting, and we moved from Queens to Manhattan so she could pursue it, her dream, I also said, well, then I want to do it too if you're doing it. Let's just do it. And she was not a stage mom. She allowed me to do it, but... I had to go to auditions in New York as a little kid, taking the subway or walking, and then lie and say my mom was with me. Oh, wow. I couldn't go as a minor and go to auditions. That's how bad I wanted acting career. This is back before answering machines. Okay. Yeah. So if you didn't get that phone call after school, you didn't get the audition, and then you had to, then I'd have to take the subway, and I was 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 doing that. So mom was having her career doing what she was doing, but it's not like she was, you know coaching me all the time and holding my hand and loving that I was doing it. She was living her life as a single woman in New York City and trying to balance raising her son and paying the bills. And you know. So years later, when she started her acting school, by then, you know, I'd already booked a bunch of jobs. She booked a bunch of jobs. We had our own careers go. And um, so she asked me to sub 
way back in the 90s when she was shooting or something, and I started to teach a little bit, and then I started to coach actors on the side. And so when she turned it into a full conservatory many years later, it was a no-brainer that I was going to come in and be one of the teachers. So I taught there for six or seven years weekly. Did you enjoy that, or is that something where you're like, oh, this is, I'll, it's okay while I'm doing it, but I, I want to go back out and act? Well, I was acting while I was, I was doing it all. In fact, okay. I made a movie that I wrote and cast all my friends in, and I had my own, uh, I had another band that I'd started, and I, had, I, had a, I was doing like 10, 12 things back then, when I was in my 30s. I was still going after my dream, gung-ho. But, um, but the problem with teaching in the 21st century was um, kids have no concern for the quality of that which came before them. Right. Something that changed. And so when I was growing up as a little kid, if you said something like when Janet Jackson did a Mae West impression on a sitcom, even as an eight-year-old, you knew who Mae West was, even though she had been a star many years before you were conceived. Oh, my God, yeah. But in, by, by 1999, it, it doesn't matter if I was talking to a 23-year-old student or a 12-year-old student. It's so they true. They didn't know what had happened three years before, dude. I know your three frustration. <laughs> So how are you going to teach these people when all your references, you have to spend 20 minutes saying, well, Robert Redford is an actor who, I mean, so it was very annoying that these kids didn't have the same respect for training because I went to UCLA as a theater major. I studied at Beverly Hills High School under the incredible John Ingle. I went and studied with the Milton Cassellas at the Beverly Hills Playhouse, which connects to your whole Scientology thing you're doing. Oh, yeah, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> in a minute here. Uh, My mom was with Milton for like 20 years. That was her mentor. Wow. Yeah, I know. I, I can relate to your frustrations with the references because here's what happened. For all the young people listening right now that might not know, there was a time, for me, this is how I learned, there was a time when I was a young person, like 10, 11 years old, maybe 9, that they introduced the fourth channel on cable. Right, it was uh, you know, on, I'm sorry, on regular TV, right, with the antennas. It was the UHF, and there was ABC, NBC. I'm oh, sorry, the fifth channel, NBC and CBS, and then and then they came out with uh, it was it was Dick and Knight became it was it was all the classics. It was Dick Van Dyke show. It was Mary Tyler Moore show. It was yeah. it was uh, Abbott and Costello, and I have all these references. Yeah, I have all these references, and uh, they're a big influence on me. Those guys. I have all these references, and I talked to someone today that's a little bit younger, and they go, I never heard of them. Dude, I'm only 23. I'm like, yeah, well, I was nine, and they were still dead for 20, 30 years by the time I saw them. <laughs> it was so old. And I feel like if you have an appreciation and a love of comedy or the entertainment industry, you almost have a duty to understand and know these things, uh, to, to, to know yeah. where it comes from. But let me clarify also, even if you weren't, I noticed that with younger people in other areas of information that's basic that they should have. Mm. So it didn't have to be entertainment figures from the past they were unaware of. It was anything. It was the past. Like, everything's been, oh God, I don't want to use a weird Scientology term to qualify it. <laughs> oh boy. No real life term that's as good as this crazy term they use, anyway, called third party. But... <laughs> There's a lot of things that have stories about them that people accept, and that's how stereotypes are reinforced, that aren't backed up by the facts. So, for example, if I'm watching the Goldbergs and they're doing the 80s, they're smart to say at the beginning, sometime in the 80s, because they'll constantly be contradicting the truth of history. Right, just jumping around. Yeah. 
that happened in 1981 that they're having happen as if it's 88. And so everything becomes one big mishmash. Like the whole rock scene I'm a part of from the Sunset Strip in the 80s, growing up there, being a freshman in high school when MTV is new, and I'm already a little metal kid, and Motley Crue and Rat are my local bands down the street at the All Ages Club. Wow. What a life experience. And, time, and I went to a high school that was like a K-Rock, it was like a John Hughes film. It was New Wave, <laughs> it was not a metal, it was not cool to be a long-haired little metal kid. At right. So, you know, then this, there's this place I can just take a bus to, and there's all these kids, and we're all rocking out to bands that are going to change the world for our genre. And then I end up having a band one day that gets huge in that scene and experiencing all that. And by the time my band gets big, the whole, everything had changed, in, not in good ways. Hmm. And it was all the setup for why all the labels went to Seattle and got those bands cheap off the sub pop, because they weren't going to be able to get us cheap anymore. Huh. The same problems Rat and Motley and Quiet Riot were having in 82, because metal wasn't cool, by 1989, you know, we were looking at quarter of a million or half a million dollar record deals. And, you know, Motley made their album off drug money and then sold it to Electra. Wow. That's how different the scene had become. Yeah. So that, you know, timing, that has so much to do with why I have really gotten nowhere, even though I've done a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> Timing is everything, they say. I tell you that. Um, yeah. well, the one thing that's good is, is life gets in the way. I've said this on my podcast. Life gets in the way, and the most important thing you can do for yourself, if you have uh, goals, that's what I'm trying to do, of course, and that's make opportunities for yourself and, and, and not give up. And that's what you've done. You've kept working. I mean, you're kind of a, you've been kind of a character actor, a journeyman actor, so you, you, you've always had yeah. work. Uh, and it's interesting. It's so cool. Yeah. I like actors like you because you're the actor I see in something like that I haven't seen in a few months ago. Wait a minute, I saw him in that other movie. He's in that movie. He's every, and it, you become that actor everybody recognizes for doing these character roles. Yeah, I went to band practice for this. I do a little tribute for Thin Lizzy thing on the side for money. And I go to band practice, and one of the guys is like 60 years old, guitar player, and he goes, I saw you last night, man, on TV. You were so young. Yeah. <laughs> you were so young. That <laughs> <laughs> was 1996, dude. That was 21 years ago. It was a whole different thing. You know, I played high school till I was 30. That's what looking younger gets you. So now that I'm pushing 50, I'm playing 30s. Yeah, you did the uh, you did you did uh, Saved by the Bell the new class. Um, I remember I remember that. Now Saved by the Bell the new class. I, I, I know it's one of your one of your past jobs, but I gotta say it wasn't the most successful show ever. Uh, <laughs> I could tell you a story that's uh, entertaining, but this but I'd have to say a naughty word. You can say a naughty word. This PG thirteen. You can okay. get away with it. All I could tell you is. I, I was in acting class with the young African-American from the original State by the Bell, Lark Morgan. Oh, really? And, yeah, we were friendly, and we were working on maybe doing a scene in class, and she was studying because she wanted to have a legit career when she left the series and not just do, like, comedy stuff. But anyway, so we were in class together, and I, like, I, I think I visited the set one time because of that, because we were working on a scene, and, um, and, uh, this is before I came and did my uh, Saved by the Bell, the new class, which was like a year later. And I'm on the set, and, you know, like a lot of actors, we didn't have a lot of respect for shows like that. 
uh, I don't want to cause trouble, but, you know, there's a lot of actors that study hard to be serious, serious dramatic. And when it's right. indicating Disney kind of like fake. Yeah, like, like intentionally I'm fake. Happy. Yeah. I don't like it usually. But anyway, right. so I went, and, the, and, and they're doing a big scene with a ton of extras, and all of a sudden the director blows up. And he, he had been a TV star, and he was guest directing. And he screams at them, what the fuck are you doing? This is not a fucking De Niro movie. This is Saved by the fucking Bell. Just pick up your cues and hit your marks and get this damn seat. And, and I was just shocked. I was like, wow. Really? That's how you're going to talk to them? That's how much you don't respect your own show? Wow. So, by the time I booked that job, I, I, you know, I was a little on the defensive, like, who knows what's going to happen when I show up to do this gig. Wow. So, so how did you feel about? I mean, how do you feel about this in general? Because this is this is an acting thing. This is things actors go through. Um, you you get this job at Save the Bell, the new class. You go, oh, Save the Bell. It's a no name. Uh, do do you kind of dread dread it a little bit? Going, is, is anyone going to see this? I don't know if it's going to be a big. I don't know if it's going to matter. I was in the show. Is it just another job? My formula was you go in and play it for real. If you see my episode. And I gotta say, the acting was pretty good on that new class. I thought they were a little less indicating, personally. But right, um, I came into, I was playing it what I always play, which is the bad guy or the bully. And <laughs> I was, uh, you know, I played it like for real. And I had to cower and, like a little girl at the end. And I played it like I was really afraid of him, and he really would hurt me, and I was really a, you know, a wimp. <laughs> wow. You know what I mean, yeah. So that's how I trained. And here was the. Weird thing, okay. I was supposed to be hitting on this girl, and she was 14, dude. She's a beautiful actress. She was very attractive already. The 14, but I was like 25. That's uncomfortable. Yes, dude. And her mom was like, <laughs> I'm looking at the director and looking at her mom and looking at her. Now, years later, I got to know her, and she she ended up studying under my mom for a while, for many years actually. Interestingly enough, huh. and then she was a young woman, but. Uh, yeah, that was for me the most uncomfortable thing. Not cowering before the little brother who was threatening me, but <laughs> cower, uh, but hitting on her and knowing she's probably still a virgin. <sighs> a little girl and she's in high school, and I'm a grown man. And <laughs> oh. but it's acting, acting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, you, you talked a little bit about this. The um. You did start a band. Uh, you worked real hard to get a band going. In fact, I heard you. I actually watched a video clip last night of you with Inappropriate Earl in place of Tom Green uh, oh, on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about – I was like, Tom Green looks different tonight. But, but he's talking to you about uh, about the rock band. You're talking about how you were seriously – like no one's taking it serious. You were trying to get your band started at 10 years old. Oh, I mentioned that on that show? Isn't that crazy? Wow. Yeah, you just, just rattle stuff up when you're talking or into the well, interview. I might you know? have been younger than that, to be honest with you. I think I was like nine. But wow. it was my best friend, Andrew Fine, and this kid, Robert Pinto, and I lived in Manhattan on the Upper East Side. And I had gotten turned on to Kiss. Some older kid. Oh, know, boy. Had, my, when, I, <laughs> when I was supposed to spend the weekends with my old man, he was pretty much not spending time with me and just leaving me with some weird kid. This kid was older and he takes me down to the black lighted, you know, like basement that's been turned into like, you know, like a playroom and he pulls out Aerosmith Rocks and catch a live one and he's like, Pay attention, kid and I sold these <laughs> albums for me and that was it. 
I was like, oh, I'm in. This is my music. It's like when I was in the car with my old man when I was six years old, and Deep Purple Smoke and the Water came on, and I start banging my little head, and my dad looked at me and just shook his head like, oh, no. You like that loud, heavy stuff. So, you know, that, that was the setup. Right. Later led to me being, you know, trying to start a band and with my friends in high school, and we were trying to write songs, but they were lame, and none of us could really play our instruments properly, and, you know, so I kept doing it until I moved out here in California, and then by then I had a drum kit in my room and when I was 12, and then I just kept working with different guitar players. You know how people are in high school. Right. I'm serious. I wanted to do this thing. I didn't even know there was a whole scene down the street at the Sunset Strip that I could play at. It was all ages. I just wanted to do it because I love hard rock and metal. So, whatever. I, I eventually... The guitar player I started my big band with Paradise, the one that got really huge on the strip, and we turned down all these multi-million dollar deals like idiots with bad advisors from our lawyers, from our management. To yeah, how does that happen? How do you turn down million dollar deals? Like, I, I would almost well, foolishly well, rush into one. <laughs> okay. You really want to understand? Like I said, at the beginning of the 80s, when bands like Quiet Riot or Motley were taking really terrible deals, it's because no one wanted to sign long-haired metal bands at all. So they had to take whatever they could take. That's why Motley does it on drug money. Guns N' Roses puts out an EP before they ever get a deal. Rat puts out, everybody were putting out their own stuff. And the local radio station in LA, KLOS, and Kami Key began to play unsigned local acts in the fall of 82. So that helped them all get deals. So only as much as maybe a six, seven months later, when Wasp is signing with Capital in 83, they were getting five times as much money as Quiet Riot got. Plus, they were signing with the major label. And everybody would tell you, you want to sign with the major because they're going to be able to get you on the radio. They're going to have more publicity. They're going to have a whole promotions team. You know, you want to ride on the coattails of the heroes that built the label before you. Right. You know, the Zeppelin, the Beatles, and what have you. So you didn't want to do, like I talked about on, on that show you were talking about, when Poison was selling out every club, like, hand over fist, as big as Motley had been a few years before, and Poison was new. Their glam thing was a whole new thing. They had come from Philly. And I could tell you crazy Poison stories. Anyway, the point <laughs> being, they were the biggest band in town. When they took a crappy deal with Capital's little subsidiary called Enigma for 20 grand, that was, like, ridiculous. So in the fall of 1988, when I'm 21 years old and... We are just starting to sell out the same clubs that I'd watched Motley and Guns and Poison at. And we start, we get an offer. Our first record deal offer was that fall. And they only offered a 60 grand on a subsidiary of uh, MCA called Mechanics. And my guitar player goes and, you know, he, he came for some money. So he, his parents weren't going to let him sign anything. They were like, we're going to get an entertainment lawyer. And we're gonna. So they're like, no, no, no. Here's all the reasons you don't want to sign this deal. Well, six months later, we got even bigger. We were selling out the country club in the Valley, which was a thousand-seater in it. And then we got offered, like, $250,000 or $275,000 with majors. You know, we were looking with Warner and Capital. And Atlantic. But then he pulled in the lawyer again. The lawyer was like, here's all the reasons you don't want this deal. You want a three-album deal with your option to pick up for four more. 
and you want them to recoup their money after this period of time, and you know all that stuff. And you're just gonna take his advice. You have to know. Yeah. Or you end up like TLC, where you're famous and broke and homeless. So we had had many friends have that happen to them in the late '80s with the record deals they signed that were horrible. And sometimes they'd cut your whole album, and then they'd hold your album, and then they wouldn't let you use your name or play gigs. Yeah. And they did that for years. It just cripple you. And so all kinds of weird things would happen if the contract wasn't... Now, we already knew that the scene was changing, not just in L.A., but there was too much alternative becoming successful, from Jane's Addiction to the Chili Peppers to mashup bands like Faith No More. So it was clear we couldn't keep being the kind of smiley, happy, paradise, white and pink that we had been doing in the 80s. But in retrospect, we still should have taken one of those record deals. And then we had uh, a publishing deal offered that was like 180 grand on top of that. And that you try to pile it up. That's how you end up with a million dollar deal. Okay. Because they weren't giving our genre bands real million dollar deals, even though Def Leppard and Bon Jovi were selling Michael Jackson units in 1988 and 89. So there were all these weird little politics. So by the time we stopped saying no, it's not good enough. And we just kept getting bigger and bigger. In 1990, there was a massive drop-off. Mm. And nobody got signed. They left. They, were good. they went up to Seattle already. The labels were like, you priced yourself out. We don't want to spend money on you guys. We don't, we don't think you're going to be able to transfer to the 90s. Wow. And we had already changed our look and our style and our sound all in the summer of 89 to adapt. And... Uh, Whatever. And then there were other things. Then the manager was blackmailing us and tried to embezzle stuff. And then we had to, then he, you know, just stuff that happens when you're in entertainment and you're dealing with all these people who want to make money off you. So, wow. So, so I, I imagine... We built it up for nothing. So that was a bummer. Yeah, I imagine it was, it was twofold, right? So part of it was, uh, the big part that you're saying there is you guys are always looking for the better deal. Until the deal wasn't even right. there anymore. You're getting too much advice from people who are involved. Because they want their cut to be bigger. Everybody gets greedy. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I, I kept saying to him, dude, Poison took a $20,000 deal. And they were the biggest band in L.A. Right. And we may be huge, but there are 10 other huge bands in our era now at the end of the 80s. Because everybody moved there. From er wherever they were after that metal you know, decline of the Western civilization to the metal years that she did put out, every clown came to L.A. So there were a lot of horrible bands drawing really well. Wow. But we had happened to have been around before and built our audience up one by one, and we really worked on our songs, and it wasn't just about... Anyway, nowadays, everybody thinks it's all the same. Like, there's no difference between L.A. Guns and Def Leppard. I'm like, no, nah, there was a big difference to us <laughs> Yeah. The band had really good production, really good songs. They were able to cross over, and one band is okay. <laughs> so we didn't even like the term hair metal back then because it was this different, you know what I mean? Absolutely. You, you, you get labeled, you should get labeled, you get pigeonholed. Great band, their songs weren't great, but, but yes, Poison's no Def Leppard. They're no Bon Jovi, no doubt about it. But they had their purpose. And there's bands you might like or I might like that really weren't very good, but we liked them, you know. There was way too many of them in L.A. at the time when we were foolishly turning down the offers we were getting. Well, the other side of that, I'll so say it was... Up, 
Go ahead, I'm sorry. We ended up with a horrible deal, Chris. We ended up with a horrible deal. Obviously. Cut an album. We ended up with an indie out of Germany for 20 grand in 91. Uh, <laughs> and you're splitting that how many ways? How... <laughs> Say it again? You're splitting that how many ways? Yeah, exactly, right? You can't split it at all. you got to put it all into the album. Uh, now, it's actually a really good album because our producer was incredible. And he was beginning his career, and he owned his own studio. So he could make a $20,000 album sound like a $150,000 album. Okay. So if you ever hear our album, when I re-release it this year, the band was called Paradise. You're re-releasing it? The album was called... Well, I'm going to re-release it on my own. Sweet. It's called Do or Die. And it came out in 1991, but only in Europe. And it was only in compact disc and cassette at the time. And so now I have an offer to put it out on vinyl with some label, and I have another offer to put it out on compact disc with some new pictures and things of the different lines up, lineups of the band. And, and it's never been online, and it's never been available in America, so I'm going to put it out digitally as well on my own. Because it's 25 years, so. And some people love the album. They think it's a great undiscovered gem that we were a really legit hard rock band that could have... But that's a whole other story. I, I feel like the time is right. New metal band. I started like rapping and doing D tune metal in '92 before, right as Rage got signed. Really. Rapping. When Corn was changing their name and they were local, and Jeff Jones came down and played locally, and that whole scene was about to happen, and I was I started to put I put together a band called Love Child, and I got another deal for that band, and then my label went bankrupt. Released in '94. So, I quit music for a while at that point. But now, I'm doing the Thin Lizzy tribute. I do the Santana tribute on the side and sing. And some people want me to do another Paradise show. We played the, we played on the Sunset Strip in 2014. I did a show. It's only me. Uh, none of the other members either want to or are, are capable of okay. playing this skill level anymore. Um, and my guitar player... He told me he didn't even want his family to know he had been a long-haired rocker back then. You know, being a naughty boy. <laughs> he doesn't want his family to know, so. So now it's just up to me. I could still sing. I grew my hair back out to do Paradise shows. If anybody wants me to do the 25th anniversary stuff this year. And then I booked that Longmire series playing Native, so my long hair is helping me. It's all part of the package right now. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I just want to say, I think the timing is great because a lot of people right now are looking back at the 80s. In 2017, people are looking back at the 80s, listening to that music, going, wow, I missed this. So I, I think it I might know. do well. You know what the irony is? I don't. He <laughs> moved on, huh? I love it. <laughs> awesome. But I want to do something modern. I, I listen to modern bands. I like bands like uh, Avenged Sevenfold and... Sure. And disturbed and like I listen to modern and I go to modern metal shows. I don't really want to reminisce about how awesome it was because it was awesome, dude. Growing up in the, on the Sunset Strip and watching these bands all get signed to become huge stars, from Striper to Keel to Wasp to Motley to Rat to Guns to Foot. I mean, it was everybody. And then making my band get all the way up there, and then it all gets sort of badly handled. Right. For me, it's very painful. Yeah. I, you know, anyway. Hey, so you're I doing well now. People give me invites, <laughs> so I go. You know, I go to different hair metal stuff and see people from the past. It's cool, but I don't live for that. 
I'm not dying to see Trickster next week, you know what I mean? Well, what is your first love? Is it doing the music, or is it doing the acting, or is it everything? Is it all one thing for you? Well, you know, back in the day, when I was in my band and acting in my late teens, early 20s, my agents were really threatened by my music career. My band was really threatened by my acting career. In fact, I turned down a movie to prove to the band I was loyal to them mm. and did a showcase Devin Records instead. In retrospect, I think I should have done the movie instead. Too, too bad, guys. What movie? But I didn't... Oh, God, what the hell was that thing called? That's a long time ago. It had a weird <laughs> title, like... Cold dog and chicken soup. Or so it wasn't that great. It wasn't that great of a movie. Well, it wasn't that great, but <laughs> I'm thinking you turned down Han Solo. <laughs> I might have gotten some good video on it. That you know, back then when you're building your career as an actor, right, right. it was everything. And you couldn't just click online and look at a reel back then. You had to go and do a lot of things to come up with a hard copy VHS. <laughs> VHS. Um, yeah, hard copy. And they'd have to be working off of bigger masters. You couldn't do VHS to VHS if it was going to back then. You'd have to pay for all these different things. Very expensive to keep your active career going with headshots and glasses and driving this stuff. Still is. Buying clothes and doing this, the reel every few, you know, every time you book a job, you're supposed to update it. That costs you hundreds of dollars to hire that editor. Absolutely. for the master copy. Hundreds of dollars for output. And, you know, you're 20 years old and doing a day job and having a band and going to UCLA and trying to be a movie star. <laughs> well, I think Don't you've done... I think you've done quite well. For I mean, me, that's why I did... That's what I wanted. I wanted all of it. I wanted it all. And nowadays... God, if I was 21 now and had a band that was hot, my agency would be trying to sign them. It's totally different these days. Just like back then, if you did TV and you took a soap opera, there was like an unspoken word law that you were never going to get to do movies. Wow. You're just not a good... If you do soaps, you do it because you're attractive and you're not very good. So I turned down several soaps because of that. Even with that, that stigma. The stigma was different back then, but nowadays, you could be... You could do a reality show and be a movie star. Like, it's, it's all changed. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about how good you are or how serious you are, whether you trained or not or... That's very they, different. They want your band. They want you doing the band. They want you to have, you know, that you can't even read for some animation voiceovers if you don't have over 20,000 Twitter followers. Right. Cross-promotion's like, everything now. Cross-promotion's everything. Yeah, they, and they want you to do all the work. They want you to be the manager, the promoter, the publicist. The, and I, I'm not doing all that. I hustled my career for 30 years and got nowhere. Now I'm just going to try to get through the second half of my life here and <laughs> enjoy it a little bit. And I'm probably still going to make music, and I'm still going to act, and I'm still going to do, you know, voiceover and whatever, but I'm never going to get famous, and I'm never really going to have a lot of money. It just is what it is. Well, I don't know if I believe that. I don't think I don't think it's ever too late there. I don't, I'm starting out pretty well, damn late. I'm, I'm probably the, the same age as you or in the same age range as you. Um yeah, I, I've, yeah. I've, well, life got in the way, you know, and uh, I'm just trying to, uh, trying to move well, it on. My 40s were horrible, dude. Well, that's all I could tell you. They were the most painful <laughs> years of my life. And I, and I, and I had no idea it was going to really bottom out and be as rough as it was for me, but wow, was that a dark night of the soul that went up for like six years. And so I feel like I'm just coming out on the other side now. And I'm you've persevered. Yeah. Wow. I'm like 50. Wow, that scares the bejesus out of me. 
Now, now, for all you, again, we talked earlier about how well uh, mixed ethnicities uh, age. If you look at this picture, Adam's lying about his age. He's actually 85, but you won't know that by looking at his photo. You've got to pick a picture without the goatee. With the goatee, I age up. That's the whole point. They want me older. You look older without the goatee? Looking, with short hair and clean-shaven, where I looked younger and more attractive and more a leading man, I couldn't get hired. I couldn't get arrested. Ah, I got gotcha. you. That's the other reason I... Got another tattoo this year, and I grow my hair back out. I'm wearing <laughs> facial hair, and I stop working out. I'm a man, damn it! Like they don't want, they don't want me to be, have a six pack. They don't want me to be attractive. They want me to be a big scary Latino guy or a big scary native guy. So that's what I'm doing. I even have facial hair as the Cheyenne native on Longmire. Everything's changed. Wow. You know, natives could never. Oh, they can't grow facial hair. Not true. Yeah, where did that come from? <laughs> Holy crap. But anyway, they, that's why I did this movie in December. If I hadn't had this goatee, there's no way in hell they would have hired me. There is no way. What movie I'm is this again? Villain. I shot this movie called Emerald Run. Emerald Run. And I play the lead Mexican killer named Tupe. Okay. Tupe is down to kill everyone. <laughs> so I want the emeralds and the money. I want the white guy dead. I'm just a bad... I'm a bad hombre. Bad hombre. So, so there's always that. There's Let's not get political, like, Adam. Well, this is not the role. This is going to be very political. I, I didn't want to play bad Mexicans, but they've been having me play them. That's why I got my sad card in 77 playing a Puerto Rican drug addict. Okay. Gangbanger. So they don't, I learned very early on, they don't want me to be mixed, and they don't want me to be attractive, and they don't want me to be intelligent. They don't want any of that. They want a big, scary, brown guy. So, well, that's what I've been doing for 30 years. But that wasn't my dream. So it's all really, to me, it's been a booby prize. Mm, I you feel like... You see 70 credits, but to me, that wasn't what I was studying in acting class. That wasn't what I was, how I was being responded to as a lead singer in a band, as like just a scary, ugly minority, token criminal guy. But that's what the industry, the acting on camera and television film, that's all they've ever wanted. The superficial, so, superficial Hollywood man. Oh, so I, why keep short hair and clean shaven and a six pack when they don't want that? I couldn't get work. I couldn't even get auditions. Well, like you said and earlier, something else. Oh, go ahead. People don't like to hear this. And GK is very the opposite of this. She is a go getter. She's a creator. I love that about her. I admire her hustle. But I had that hustle for thirty years. You don't. You wouldn't believe the things I did to try to make it in acting and music. You wouldn't believe it. But. Not, nothing worked. So, here I am now. You know, and I'm like, I'm like, okay, let me be as unattractive and scary and older <laughs> as I can for these, so I can get some work and, like, maybe retire one day. Even. I, I don't I, have any money. I think your breakout role is coming, Adam. I really do. Yeah. Um, All I can tell you is it's been a long road to hoe. It is a delight by one. <laughs> I haven't, I've watched so many friends become very successful, and it, that's, tough and I'm still struggling and doing day jobs even though I'm you know just got an animated series and I'm going to be back on this TV show it looks great on Facebook but I did a movie in December and I'm on this animated series but you need to make that money like three times a month to pay your bills yeah people don't realize that yeah I do one video game and you only get $600 after agent taxes you know all this Okay, so that's all I had time for for today. 
We pick up with Adam Gifford next week on Thursday talking about uh, – we'll talk about Scientology a little bit. There's a little bit to talk about with that, and he'll talk about if the LAPD is a little bit fishy and got some conspiracies going on, which kind of fits the other narrative for tomorrow. As uh, as I said earlier, tomorrow I'm going to have Mary Conlon, wonderful lady. I had a great conversation with Mary. And before I get into it with Mary tomorrow, of course, I'm going to address – uh, Sir rapes a lot, or as he goes by often, uh, a DJ Donkey Punch. <laughs> so I'll cover all that tomorrow. Until then, that about sums it up. Have a good day, everybody. See you then. All the spot analysis. Am I crazy? Uh, <laughs> uh, no. Are we on a podcast? Yeah. I think I'm gonna come get some. If you want some, come. Gotta get dead. Gotta get dead. Gotta get some. My favorite, though. Am I? You're my favorite. Oh, thank you yeah. so much. I think not. Put me on the e-meter and ask me a question, and then it would float.